everybody, and welcome to another exciting, erotic episode of the Midnight Mass Podcast. I'm your horny hostess, Peaches Christ. And before we can go any further, I've got to bring out my popper-sniffing co-host. It's the one, the only... It's Michael Verratti. Well, hello, hello, Peaches. And despite this week's theme, I can tell you this movie is no walk in the park. (laughs) But it is a can full of Crisco. All right. Well, I I think we could probably uh, get into it. Now, the filmmaker we are going to be celebrating and the film that we have chosen are both favorites for Michael and I. So we are very excited. This has been on our list for a long, long time. It's so perfect for the Midnight Mass podcast. But Michael... Let's not leave them hanging in their sling any longer. What movie are we doing this week? Well, if you've been bringing allegations against Peaches and I that the show for some reason is not queer enough, we've got you covered this week because we're doing 1980s Cruising, directed by William Friedkin and written by William Friedkin based on a book by Gerald Walker and starring Al Pacino, Paul Servino, Karen Allen, and a lot of love daddies. That's right. Authentic Leather Daddies, as we will discuss later in the episode. This is one of those films that has been reclaimed. We kind of dance around it, but in many ways it was sort of reviled and vilified and angering and beyond controversial. It It was sort of a taboo film. And it is something that I think a lot of us now can kind of stand back and look at and go, wow, that is, I think... A really good movie and it's exciting and it is taboo and it's transgressive and it's weird, but kind of give it a different reevaluation. Well, it's forever taboo, but I think it was especially taboo at the time because of matters of representation. And we get into this in different ways with both of our interview subjects. But it's the reality that queer folks and queer scenes were just not really seen at the movies very often when or at all when Cruising came out. And so then to have this sort of seedy, sleazy look at our world be one of the front runners by a major director a lot of people within the community who were fighting for a different kind of visibility took umbrage with it but the reality is is what is depicted in the movie is true it just may not be true for everybody on its surface if you take out the i don't know the stuff that makes it sort of taboo it, it's kind of a straightforward slasher film you know yeah. with a bit of a a mystery to it like any slasher films all slasher films typically are are sort of who the hell is that and why are they doing this but it's 1980 so it's post halloween post black christmas but pre friday the 13th and no one talks about this film as being a slasher film no because of the serious nature in which it came out and i think part of what we get into in our interviews is slasher films at least for us and especially I think for our listeners, tend to be fun. This isn't something that you would consider to be fun because the danger is so real. You know, the danger of going to camp and fucking your friends and getting hacked up in creative, bizarre ways by Jason Voorhees is silly, it's fantasy, it's fun. You know, we're not really worried about that. But queer people, uh, by and large, to this day, sadly enough, still have to be afraid of, you know, being murdered. You know, we are targets. It's interesting not to be like all Rasha Shah about it, but maybe even more than a slasher film, I would think of this as an American giallo, if that makes sense. Because there is like a... It is giallo. Yeah. Absolutely. A tangible eroticism... Yes. And a very tangible danger. And I think that those things combined together really create that. I mean, this is very much 
a William Friedkin vision of what a giallo would be. That's actually closer to what it is than a slasher film. I admittedly was trying to make some sort of a connection so that I could plug our Patreon. So here it is, <laughs> the plug for our Patreon. We just released a special Midnight Mini Mass all about Friday the 13th with our special guest, Thomas Decker. So if you subscribe to the Patreon and you haven't checked that out yet, check out our Friday the 13th Mini Mass with Thomas Decker because Thomas did a, a reevaluation himself where you, you watched the whole series and then realized that he hadn't seen a bunch of the Friday the 13th movies. You know, he'd, he'd only seen the first couple. So it's a really fun talk all about Friday the 13th. That's on our Patreon. Thank you to all the listeners that subscribe and support us. It means the world to us. But we'll get back to it. Giallo films, for those of you who don't know, because Michael just assumes with his snotty cinematic way <laughs> that everyone knows what he's talking about. But um, that's something that you can explore in our Argento episode. So if you haven't listened to our Argento episode, it's a style of Italian horror filmmaking. It's a, it's a genre all on, onto its own. And we tackle it pretty well in our previous yeah. episode about Argento. And Gialli usually center around violent crime and uh, are made with some sense of flair for the erotic and style. Yeah. And this movie has a little bit of all of those things, I would say, and if and more. And I love that this conversation is about reclamation. The idea that this film was scandalous and is scandalous, but has been very much reclaimed by our community and is now celebrated and I think that the conversations that we have about this film explain why. If you haven't seen Cruising in a while, especially if you've never seen Cruising, do yourself a favor and sit down and watch this film. You might even want to do that before listening to the rest of the episode. And I rarely say that, but I think this film in particular is just rich with uniqueness. Who do we have up first? Speaking of people who understand the changing tide of pop culture, our first guest is someone who folks may know from his work at Scream Factory, but also for his very popular Instagram page at Jeffrey Mixed. He also, after we did our interview with him, released a single called I'm Not Your Second Choice, which we didn't get a chance to talk to him about because it was a secret when we spoke. But he's here with us today to talk about all things cruising. It's Jeff Nelson, and he's talking to us right now. Welcome back, listeners. It's no secret that we here at Midnight Mass are deeply committed to the curation and exhibition of cult cinema. And as it turns out, our next guest is a veteran of both. Known around the horror sphere for his work as the former senior marketing director of Scream Factory, he's worked tirelessly over the years to ensure that fans are able to have copies in hand of their favorite fright faves. These days, his flair for pop culture curation continues, albeit in a slightly different way. As the creator behind the extremely popular Jeffrey Mixed Instagram account, he frequently offers up clips and photos of camp, kitschy, culty, and queer curiosities of yesteryear, 
often to the delight of thousands of eager followers. He's a creator, media personality, curator of the highest order, and so much more. Please welcome Jeff Nelson. Jeff, welcome. My God, thank you. What a what an intro. Holy <laughs> shit. I don't think I've ever had an intro like that ever in my life. That's, uh, that's above and beyond, but thank you very much. I'm, well, uh, I'm glad It's to be all here. true, though, too. So yes, I'm humble pie on this stuff, but thank you. Thank you. And it's a thrill to have you here. I am a fan of your social media. We have a lot of mutual friends. This is the first time you and I are getting to meet, which is exciting. And in addition to a shared love, I think of a lot of movies. One that really stood out to Michael was our shared love of cruising. And so let's start with your introduction to cruising. Do you remember like when your love affair with this film started? Yes, 1990 exactly. That's when I rented the film on VHS for the first time. I'd always heard about it and controversial and everything, but you know, I was at an age too young to see it in the theaters. And I rented it and I watched it. And quite honestly, I thought it was a little dark and odd and spooky, but I just kind of didn't really think very much of it. It wasn't until the mid 2000s, for some reason, I reevaluated again. It probably came out on DVD, I think. It was reissued. And I looked at this again and again and again and again and again. And I was like, oh, wow, this is a gay slasher film at the end of the day. I mean, there's a lot of things going on. It's William Friedkin as director of The Exorcist, but it's a scary movie. And it's a particularly scary movie to, uh, well, a lot of gay men who cruise, yeah. whether it's parks or bathhouses or general stuff. So there's sort of like a, um, almost like looking for Mr. Good Bar. That's a reference for some people who know that film for gay men to be like, okay, we've all put ourselves in these dangerous situations and look what can happen. On the flip side, there's also some camp and outdated 80s, you know, early 80s type of stuff, late 70s kind of brush over of looks, styles, how gay men dress, danced. The movie is very leathery, masculine, very hardcore, sweaty. Um, that's a, probably a great example. Yeah. Every time I see it in the theater, I'm like, oh, a lot of people are perspiring in this film. You want it to be an odorama. Yeah, it's, <laughs> you kind of you kind of feel a little like it's kind of sleazy, but it's not even kind of, it is. And it's a time capsule movie. It was a time where gay men in New York City and other cities were reveling in a time and place before, unfortunately, AIDS came and sort of unfortunately upheaval that kind of decadence or whatever but i don't know i just got really into it and then i saw that other people like yourselves fangoria i think did an article on it there was some reappreciation that was happening when this film that it was like wait what but cruising yeah. is getting this kind of love and attention when it was scorned so badly in 1980 with all the controversy from gay men largely and then it just kind of kept on growing. I have a, a hoodie that has cruising on the back of it. I've been stopped a couple of times at Trader Joe's from straight men saying, that's a cool jacket. And I think <laughs> because Al Pacino was in it, that brings a level of mainstream curiosity. It's almost like a bridge for, say, some straight men to like check this movie out even though it's a gay film. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Jeff, it's interesting to me because when we talk to a lot of guests about their attachment to cult films, a lot of people discover them early in life. But this is obviously not a movie that I think 
people are watching when they're really young and probably shouldn't be. Uh, you talk about seeing it for the first time in 1990 and how your immediate reaction was not necessarily the fan fervor you have for it now. Yes. And I think what's interesting about the trajectory of a movie with cruising is that if you see it in 1990, a decade after it comes out, there is also baggage associated with it. And I'm wondering if because there was this sort of queer community stigma with cruising for a while, that it took a while for you to unpack that and also apply sort of your thoughts and your love of slashers and horror to the film. You spoke to so much history as well. Cruising came out in 80, exactly a year before the first AIDS cases are announced. So for a while, a movie like this also is going to be very complicated with the community for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested in that unpacking from a, a gay spectatorship angle of you not necessarily loving it at first to becoming the person that I know that has posters and <laughs> doll recreations. They're like, you love this movie. Yes. And I'm wondering if to you, if this is like too macro of a question, but was it queer unpacking a bit before you fully were able to embrace it? Yes, you know, it's interesting. If I had been an out gay man in 1979 living in New York City, I probably would have been one of the people protesting this film. At that time, queer cinema was not a thing. And so representation of gay men in particular were problematic to say the least. Television shows and transgender and all that kind of depicted a lot of murderers and victims and boys of the band, which is again, the opposite end of William Friedkin's, you know, uh, cruising stuff. It's all light and campy and fun and fancy in the early seventies, which a groundbreaking part of its own thing. But I would have been one of those people protesting. I know I would have because this is your first mainstream from the director of The Exorcist kind of film, and it's dark and stabby and horror. And as you know, both of you, a lot of films in the 80s, early 80s, had some troubling LGBTQ problems. Windows with Talia Shire, a uh, murderous lesbian with, uh, what's her name, Elizabeth Ashley, dressed to kill infamously with transgender stuff. And even a film the next year called The Fan with Michael Bean and Lauren Bacall as a Definitely closeted gay men going on there too. Those films, if I was an adult at that time living in the community, I would be like, nah, these are problematic. I think we should be able to in some way thank these films for existing because we needed those films to cause protests and uproars and controversies and conversations, kind of like Basic Instinct in the early 90s. Same type of thing where it's like, Okay, it gave us visibility to speak and have people understand like this is problematic. Once that fervor or whatever is dust is, you know, settled and you can take a look at it down the road, I think we can appreciate. I'm totally yeah. so with you. I love that you're bringing this up. I think it's so important to articulate it because I think there is a way to both be able to criticize what the film's reaction would have been when it came out and, and why it was upsetting to people and, and acknowledge and see the protesters and understand that they were completely legitimate because of the state of the world and the way that queer people were being treated. And for my generation, I remember specifically loving The Silence of the Lambs and loving Basic Instinct and being a young queer kid who was just starting to come out and seeing those protesters. And for me, what it did was acknowledged what I didn't yet understand. And then I was able to go and look at this history of problematic filmmaking where our community is concerned, while also still being able to say, but I do like this movie and I'm a fan of this film. 
And I think you can hold both ideas. You know, you can use the film to move the dial while also saying, but Silence of the Lambs is obviously a great movie. Mm -hmm. um, but let's talk about what's the matter with it. You know, Buffalo Bill is a problematic trans character because it was one of the only kinds of trans right. characters we ever got. And actually, you brought up De Palma. And you also brought up Boys in the Band. And so I think we've got two interesting filmmakers here to kind of dive into. And what I wanted to acknowledge, and I wonder if you feel the same way, is with De Palma, I'm such a huge fan. Same I here. love his films. But as I've gotten older, I've actually had more problems with those trans characters. And I'm more offended and upset by them because of how much I love De Palma. I mean, he created Carrie, which to me is the queer masterpiece. You know, oh, totally. yes. But Friedkin, as I've gotten older, I actually feel like there's less judgment to these films from his, Interesting. his gaze. I feel like Boys in the Band and Cruising are actually less jarring for me or less offensive. I feel like I watch them and I feel like they're presented in this very kind of matter of fact way that I actually, as a queer person, I'm like, yeah, I identify with this. As a queer person, you know, I watch Dress to Kill or Raising Cain and it's like, no, I don't know trans women like this. This is weird. Yeah. This is clearly using transgenderism as a tool for fear. And I don't feel that way when I watch Boys in the Band or Cruising. And it's interesting and some of your listeners and you both might go, oh, really? I couldn't get into Boys in the Band. I still can't. I know that's going to seem sacrilegious to a lot of LGBT. Like, what are you talking about? <gasps> I can't get into it. To me, believe it or not, at that, I've tried watching it a few times, and the stereotypes for early 70s, for me, feel more offensive. Um, even though it's a light movie, it's an important film, I should try to give it another chance, but I tried recently, I just couldn't. Cruising, you said matter-of-factly. Yeah, it is matter-of-factly. It happens to be in the leather scene and the dark dungeons of the bars and whatever, but it is a very matter-of-fact movie. I like the way that you put that. And I feel like it is more just, it is what it is. You're just in a heightened environment. Dress to Kill, I love so much. And I watched it recently. I've seen it so many times like you have. Yes, the Michael Caine character is like, oh boy, this is, this is not a good reflection for transgender at all. And you mentioned Raising Cain, and that's another one. And you can go back into movies from the 60s, like Homicidal. I don't know if you remember that one. Oh, yes. Castle, William Castle film, great, yes. Very fun, entertaining film, but like, oh boy, bad messages there. I'm glad we moved on. You can't make movies like that anymore. And, you know, proof positive. I don't know if you saw last year's Ryan Murphy's American Horror Story, where it was an entire tribute to cruising and... Oh, uh, I didn't see it. That was New York, right? It was New York. Yeah. I was offended. I was really? really offended. I was so offended that I didn't watch it all the way through. I fast forwarded wow. it. I love Ryan Murphy's stuff. A lot of his stuff. He's done a lot for the gay community in particular. But this one, they fused in cruising and AIDS and the match together to me felt like a slight to those scores of men and women that are no longer with us. And I was offended mm. by so many stuff. So anyways, sorry, Ryan Murphy, if you ever heard this, but like <laughs> I was just speaking the truth, my truth at least. But um, yeah, I mean, again, you can go back in a time and Silence of the Lambs is a great example. I've forgotten about that one um, where it's like, oh yeah, 
Buffalo Bill is that? Ooh, yeah, you, I don't know. You, I don't know if you could get away with that now. Yeah, it's interesting. But uh, a lot of these movies in queer cinema cultures have been reclaimed. You mentioned Basic Instinct mm-hmm. uh, and the protest of that movie. Now that movie is a beloved cult classic. I don't know if Silence of the Lambs has been reclaimed by the trans community, but I have seen a lot of really interesting writing about it from trans authors who dissect why it doesn't work and why it's offensive and also explore its place in the culture. So I think the thing that's important with movies like this uh, and how they age is to keep having the conversation. One thing I wanted to talk about was how you said when you wear your hoodie or jacket that straight men talk to you about Al Pacino. And this was a very interesting role for him to take on at this time. And also not the only time he plays queer, as we know, in Dog Day Afternoon was another uh, example. And I would argue he's kind of a drag queen in Scarface, but that's up for debate. (laughs) Um, But it's interesting because we know that Al Pacino was not William Friedkin's choice for this movie. He wanted Richard Gere to play this part. And even after the movie came out, you know, Friedkin was notorious about maintaining his opinion and being very brusque about it. And he would say, you know, up until his passing that he still would have liked Richard Gere to have played this part. And I'm wondering as someone who loves this movie and how Al Pacino is so essential to its DNA, what your thoughts on that? And do you think it would have worked? It's really interesting. There's two things that came to mind. First of all, I love the word that you use reclaimed. I think that obviously the gay community has reclaimed this film as a lot of other films in the past. That's a good, good word to use. And I hope that the transgender community at some point maybe might be able to reclaim some of their depictions um, from TVs and movies in the past too. But it has to happen organically and it has to happen with time. Richard Gere, okay, handsome man. And for my particular taste, more handsome than Al Pacino. But had Richard Gere taken on the role, because you can kind of see what it would have been like when you watch American Gigolo, which was the same year and that had some problematic gay depictions in that film as well. I don't know if you remember seeing that film. He's a pretty man. Mm-hmm. Al Pacino is more rough around the edges. And Al Pacino, clearly from Scarface, has a more mainstream sort of gateway appeal. I mentioned that earlier. I don't know if we would be celebrating cruising in the same way if Hal Pacino had not been in it. So therefore, I'm glad that whether it was Gear or Pacino, I think Pacino makes the film more. It's been moved on to other generations. Not so much on William Friedkin. William Friedkin has the film study people that, you know, you know, but like Pacino is Pacino. And some people are just like, I'm going to watch all of Pacino's films because I love Scarface so much or I love this film so much. So I think that that would work. One thing I've, I've thought of when we were talking about De Palma, going back to you, is you know that De Palma did a treatment for cruising first. It didn't work, but he did take the museum scene from Dress to Kill. That was something that he had had in cruising. And you can totally tell. Angie Dickinson is completely cruising a guy and the camera's following her and this guy's picking her up and everything. It's like, Oh, that would have been in cruising. That would have been in Brian De Palma's. Did you know that? I did not. That's amazing. Yeah. Can you imagine had De Palma done cruising? Wow, this would have been a whole other thing too. A totally different thing. 
but I'm glad he did dress to kill. And I'm glad Friedkin did uh, cruising as is. I agree with that. And I agree with you on Richard Gere. And also part of it's like, well, we love this film and we love it the way it is. And I think with both those examples, De Palma and Richard Gere, I think we can agree as film fans, it would have been flashier. It would have been in a different style that the, the lead character would have been prettier. And I think what I love about Al Pacino and Friedkin is this feels like New York in this era. Mm. You know, I'm old enough to remember not that era exactly, but growing up on the East Coast and going into New York City in the 80s. And it was very scary. Times Square was very seedy. The city was really, really gritty. The meatpacking district was... I actually think it would probably was really fierce, you know. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, <laughs> but, but also very terrifying, you know, to right. straight people or whatever. All of that for me is, I think, attractive. I really like that. And I feel like with De Palma and Richard Gere, you just wouldn't have gotten the same level of grit or mm -hmm. even Pacino as a New York City cop. Like there's just something so real about that. The New York City has its own vibe, its own taste. Also, Al Pacino, and has admitted in life, was uncomfortable doing this. And that uncomfortableness kind of comes out naturally in his performance, in his take and everything. And I think of worse. You mentioned the New York stuff, and Michael, of course, we'll go back to you on the questions, but like there was a lot of those New York is horrible place to live movies at that time. The Warriors and Escape from New York. And, uh, you know, just like that was a time for New York where it was like, yeah, you're taking your life for risk if you're living in this era. But it's cool to see those films depicted in those times because it is an environment that adds to the grittiness, as you said, and atmosphere of the film. What's really interesting about these depictions, and yeah, there are conversations to be had about crime and, and kind of the state of New York at the time, but when you look at the depictions in something like The Warriors or Escape from New York or Cruising, one of the things that they're highlighting make these areas bad is the otherness and an undesirable element. And what are those? They're people that aren't hetero or yeah, aren't yep. normal. And I think that's interesting because it really represents this kind of group think of is New York bad or is it just not heteronormative, you know? Interesting. I like that take. I'm thinking of one you mentioned that I'm thinking of all those other like, you know, Maniac is set in that time. Eyes of Laura Mars. Um, yeah. The fan, I mentioned that. Uh, Dressed to Kill. Um, and like there was just so much. New York stuff. That's an interesting take about but the think otherness. Think about the eyes of Laura Mars and think about um, the fan. In both ways, the women who are plagued in those movies are picked on and plagued because they are part of the worlds we're talking about. Lauren Bacall is like, you know, she's a Broadway star who runs around with gays and is like right. fabulously brunching and living her hedonistic lifestyle. And uh, the idea of, of Laura Mars and her kind of fashionista world that's mm -hmm. not that's not good and pure, you know. That's true, you know. I never made that connection before. Hey, light bulb. <laughs> you know. <laughs> One thing about cruising that I think makes it really interesting and from a queer perspective and and is something when when talking about the reclamation of it, cruising is based on a real story. It's based on something that was happening and sadly continues to happen, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there's this side of the filmmaking where you go, okay, this was irresponsible of a filmmaker to do with this sort of level of budget and this sort of 
notoriety, right? Like you say, you're coming off The Exorcist, which shook the entire world. So like you're the hugest director and why this? And, you know, I think in some ways there is this sort of irresponsibility that we can all agree existed. So moving that aside, there's also the reality of these sorts of things are both cathartic for us as queer people, but also terrifying yes. in, in a way that's just yes. really, really upsetting because this is going to sound so horrifying to all of us. But if someone were to make a movie now about the Pulse Massacre, I think oh my God. it would really, oh. you know, really, really rub us in the wrong way. And so I'm trying to put myself in the perspective of community members when this movie came out thinking, yeah, there was a killer on the loose. What we now know is there were killers on the loose, which Friedkin actually deals with in this film, which I didn't know until recently. The reason the killer in the movie is played by different people, spoiler alert, is because Friedkin intentionally wanted the audience to feel that jarring effect of, did they get the right one? And is there more than one? And watching it as a kid growing up, I just thought that that was weird that they didn't look the same. (laughs) I never realized that it was intentional, that that there's actually, he's saying there's multiple killers killing queer people. You know, it's terrifying. So it's not a question so much as like just an acknowledgement of like this is another layer to all of this. It's a real thing. And you say layers, and that is one thing that I have to say is like a good movie or a guilty pleasure even, if you don't have layers, then it's just one and done and you don't think about it anymore. There is a lot to unpack and cruising from so many levels outside of it and within the movie itself. The ending is a lot to unpack. I won't spoil it here, but again, it's one of those things where you're just like, oh, okay, I can put my mind that it happened like this or that he did this or that that didn't happen or whatever. The manipulation of voices, like you said, the same voice being played by killers that were different heights and sizes and whatever. And you don't notice that until you see it a second, third, 15, 100 times like like we have. And you're going through it. You also said something about the dangerous situations. And I'm just going to touch upon this really quickly. Um, Many... Men of Gen X, older, um, maybe more millennial, maybe still to younger generations, but definitely Gen X and older for sure. We put ourselves in a lot of dangerous sexual situations, um, whether in cruising, literally cruising was a thing you did. You did it in parks, you did it in public places, you did it in because it was an underground sort of shameful type of whatever. There was a lot of things going on and cruising hits that nerve of like, what if you brought the wrong stranger home? I'm going to redeem myself with Ryan Murphy here. His series last year, Dahmer, was excellent. Very hard to watch, very disturbing, but has that same kind of thing of like, be careful of who you go home with type of vibe through it. And cruising is still very scary when it has those moments. It's stabbing scenes are horrific. They're hard to watch. Worse than Dress to Kill, and Dress to Kills is pretty graphic. Wouldn't you say, Michael? No, I would. Well, what's interesting is I think when there was the reaction against cruising and protests from the community, they were viewing it as a morality tale coming out of Hollywood. But I think the truth is it is a morality tale, but it's not holding people accountable for being queer. It's holding people accountable for 
just the dangerous situations they put themselves in. Mm-hmm. William Friedkin has very much gone on the record. He obviously was an ally. In fact, there's a really he brilliant was. interview where he is referred to by the moderator as a heterosexual filmmaker. And he's like, I don't think of myself as that. He just is like, I'm a person. <laughs> that's I think awesome. That's, I think it's really amazing. Good, like, you yeah. know, I'm glad he's like that. And by the way, R.I.P. William yes, Friedkin, wherever yes. you are, we love you. That's why we're talking about this film. What I think is really interesting is it it can be a morality tale in the way that life is dangerous. And when you are part of a community that's already marginalized, there's danger out there. It doesn't mean that the morality of the movie is anti-gay, right. but I think that it is a warning, much in the same way the opening of When a Stranger Calls is a morality tale mm-hmm. in a different way. About oh, just yeah, yeah. know who's there, know who's calling, know who is watching your children, you know, these kind of things that become the urban legend, that become the boogeyman that speaks to our community. And I think that these are still boogeymen that persist in our community because whether it's cruising, whether it's apps, whether it's meeting someone at a bar, there is always that great unknown. And that mm-hmm. is something that if you completely dismiss it, then you didn't learn the lesson. You know, I think it should be good to maybe have these things in the back of your mind if you're going to go home with a stranger just in case. Absolutely. One thing I wanted to bring up, I mentioned at the top of the show, your love of curation. And I don't know another guest that I get to talk about this with. One of my favorite double features that I ever got to see when I lived in the city of Pittsburgh was at the Warhol Museum and they played Cruising and Can't Stop the Music as a double feature. (laughs) Now, I know that Scream Factory did not release Cruising, but you were very directly responsible for getting us Can't Stop the Music on Blu-ray. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the synergy between these two movies because... Oh yeah, there definitely is. I think that for the layperson to see those two movies put together, it's sort of like a big what the fuck. But I think if you know about the history of the making of them, they're actually very intertwined. Yes. And I know that you of all people, Jeff Nelson, will know about this. Yeah, no. So for those who don't know, Can't Stop the Music, the ridiculously bad Village People Gallon Car film, was filming in New York City at the same time that Cruising was being filmed. Um, so protesters were sometimes showing up to protest Cruising and going to the Can't Stop the Music movie stuff. And the Can't Stop the Movie producers <laughs> were like, no, you need to go down the street to <laughs> the freaking Cruising one. We're doing our stuff. Those two films are outrageously controversial for two totally different reasons. Can't Stop the Music is the most closeted gay movie ever in history, period. No one says the word gay, but it is the gayest film, I think, one of the gayest films ever. It's campy, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, come on, it's Can't Stop the Music. And I had a blast putting that one out and working with like Randy the Cowboy and, you know, getting it to be the best stuff. I was thrilled for this release. It didn't sell for shit, but it's still a fun film. But then you go over to Cruising, which, by the way, was another film that when I worked at Shout Factory, Scream Factory, that uh, we really wanted to get. Probably would have fainted the idea of working with Free Kim. Arrow Video put it out, and they did a fantastic job. But I can only imagine, because I kind of have heard through hearsay, that it was challenging to work with Friedkin And if you watch that disc and you see the extras, you can see that there's not a whole lot of new extras and material. A lot of the focus was on the restoration and thank God it got restored closer to its original version because the DVD version was all done in a Smurf blue wash. So I'm kind of glad we didn't get that one because I think my heart would have sunk if 
Friedkin was too challenging and I would have been like, come on, man, this is one of my favorite films of all time. <laughs> but I think that is a hysterical double feature. I'm impressed that that even happened. Talk about taking your mind from one to another. You're horned up one moment and then you're disco dancing the next. It's just, yeah. And Can't Stop the Music has a lot of problematic stuff going on in it too. And there's also some stuff that became not, I wouldn't say problematic, but you watch the film now and you're like, there's Bruce Jenner. There's yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. For the record, if you haven't seen this film, the idea that there would be a double feature is so beyond hilarious. Right. Oh, God. Other than what you just discussed and, and the shooting being at the same time or whatever. However, I will say this for very different reasons, both Can't Stop the Music and Cruising deserve to be covered on the Midnight Mass podcast. Yes, and, yes. Um, and I think maybe we could we could say that Can't Stop the Music would be a really fun movie for us oh, to yeah. tackle in the future, oh, yeah. you know. But I wanted to kind of just piggyback, you know, you brought up Friedkin and sort of the difference between him and, and other filmmakers is that this is someone who, when they were shooting cruising, fought to actually use real game Leatherman um, in in the in those scenes. And so, part of the grit and the authenticity that we experience when we watch cruising, and I think one of the reasons we as queer people really love this film, for me, it's like a record of of yes. a part of our culture. Yes. Those are real people you see on screen interacting with Al Pacino, who are those people. They're playing themselves and they're wearing their own clothes and they're doing their own dancing. And so just for me, I'm so glad that he brought that level of yes. authenticity and he knew and I'm sure, you know, um, insurers and other people were like, this is crazy. We need to hire professional extras. This is also the same man. I love William Friedkin. I love his movies. I just think he kind of operated with this very renegade, almost scary spirit of the movie matters more than anything. And so, you know, we know now that he shot a gun on the set of The Exorcist. We know that he right. kept Linda away from her mother. We know that she, to this day, suffers from a back injury that she received while making that film. And so there is this sort of part of um, William Friedkin where you go, huh, I don't know. Like, that's, like, we you could never get away with doing that now, you know? He, he was banned from two gay leather bars during the making of this movie. They were yeah. like, you need to stop coming here. Like, they basically told him, <laughs> get out. <laughs> so he had this sort of very fuck it attitude, which, you know, I mean, look up any interview with him. This is mm -hmm. this is a person who felt very passionately about um, things. Anyway, I don't know what my question is, other than I wanted to get back to sort of this legacy, which we haven't really discussed, but he fucking hated Al Pacino after this film was made. Like, he may not have said, I hate Al Pacino, but as a filmmaker who made a movie with a movie star, if you go and watch any interview where he's asked about Al Pacino, he does not shy away from trashing Al Pacino and saying he wished it was Richard Gere. <laughs> wow, that is so fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah. I actually have a couple of issues from a vintage gay magazine called Mandate um, ah. uh, from the time like Honcho and whatever. And it literally, it has three guys, extras from the film, and it says in big, bold letters, the men of cruising. And it's literally interviewing these men and photos and pictures of the set of cruising. And it's a total time capsule, as you said. And again, that is why that movie is important. It's also, again, going back to Can't Stop the Music, why that's important too. It was over the top disco. It was this, it was flamboyant. It was whatever. It was like, Can't Stop the Music, Xanadu and the Apple and ro a Roller Boogie. You can't, you can't recreate those the same. But cruising, it's funny that freaking just doesn't care for Pacino because again, I don't, 
know if it would be in mainstream sort of pop culturousness if it wasn't for Pacino. I'll stand by that. And Pacino's uh, good. I mean, I think he's one of the reasons I love the movie so much, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's strange. But I think there was something deeper. And if you watch William Friedkin talk about it, it sounds like it was one of those just working relationships where having seen enough interviews, it sounds like they just didn't like each other. And, you know, Pacino just didn't work the way that Friedkin thought he should be working, you know, and he had a different style about him. And probably, you know, they both had ego and, you know, all, all, all of that. But the thing is, is sometimes with those sorts of tense situations, you come up with great movies and no one can deny that his questionable practices yielded great results, right? Like, mm-hmm. is it fair to traumatize uh, young Linda Blair? No, I no. mean, that's not appropriate right. at all. Yes, But did it work? Yeah. I, well, <laughs> it, yes, it is the exorcist. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> I am curious, Jeff, you mentioned that you have those issues of mandate where they interview some of the background folks from Cruising. And because we know of the response of the world and the film community when the movie came out, as well as sort of the subsequent LGBTQ community conversation. How do those interviews read? Like, what's the vibe on the set, if you recall? Because that, to me, is interesting. Because we're not talking to Pacino. We're not talking to Friedkin. We're talking to actual Leathermen as the movie's being made. And you have to think about the fact that no movie has ever been made about the leather scene in 1979 when they're shooting it and it's coming out in 80. So it had to... I felt like huge and anomalous and interesting. So I'm just curious if you recall anything from those pieces. It has been a while since I read them, but what I recall that, first of all, it was a positive um, experience for these guys to do this. And they, the controversy, it's interesting. The gay community at the time was protesting the film itself. And then they were also interfighting because at that time you had gay men that are like, look, we are just like every Joe Schmo and we look like every Joe Schmo and we are not in the leather scene and we don't want this major movie coming out from United Artists to depict us at that. Whereas then the leather community was saying, hey, we exist. Our representation matters. Fuck you. You know, and so it's interesting that there was controversy on two fronts here, interfighting and then with the film itself. So in those interviews, it came off as that they were having a good time. Didn't I didn't nothing read as like problematic at it at all. And it probably were, you know, I mean, again, you're dealing with a major movie director, you're getting visibility, you're having fun. I don't know. It's just the whole vibe was also very horny movie. You know, we've talked about a lot of the dark and everything, but like, Jesus, there's fisting going on. There's poppers. There's this. There's that. There's all sorts of stuff. I'm telling you, (laughs) I'm telling you, Jeff, we have a dear friend of mine who was a guest on our episode for The Wicker Man, who is really well known in the UK for staging and creating um, smell-o-vision screenings of films. And he does the whole thing with the sort of odorama, scratch and sniff stickers. And I am like... We got to reach out to Bryn and we, can you imagine yes. cruising well, in mean, Odorama? It would be perfect. Here's the thing. I can't imagine it. And I'm, I'm thinking about the moment in the movie where we, as the audience, have to scratch and sniff poppers. And of course. Like, but a weird 30 to 45 no. seconds afterwards in the theater. That's yeah. I was like, you, you get leather, you get some sort of a musk scent, poppers. Yeah, you get B.O. I can see it. Oh, a little, total bit. Yes, B.O. You know, completely. You get a little, yes. a little poop and, um, <laughs> you know. Blood, you'd have to get some blood in there, you know. And I semen, you have to get cum, the smell of (laughs) the delicious smell of cum, you know. So, 
and and stale beer because if you've ever been to an eagle you know bar yeah. smell you know yeah. bars have that sort of you know the rotten beer smell there's so much smoking going on in the oh, film smoking, and, and yes. there's, just, there's so much i mean again going on the light stuff you know i've seen this film i'm sure you have too with an audience i've seen it at the new beverly i've seen it at the new art when it's down here in los angeles People all crack up at the Al Pacino trying to dance scene. That is a choice that he made. And, and uh, you know, he's supposed to be on huffing some stuff, but it's like, oh, God. Um, there's also the the amusement of seeing Powers Booth talking about um, what the hanky codes mean. Um, right. There's James Remar um, getting to a gay fight with Al Pacino. There's a lot of things going on where there's some levity. But for most part... It is straightforward, scary, serious. Take this seriously. That's why it kind of works. But kind of like The Exorcist, that movie had that same sort of take it seriously. It's kind of hard sometimes not to laugh at your mother sucks cocks in hell. So like in Cruising, when the sergeant says to Al Pacino, have you ever got a guy smoke your pole or whatever like that? <laughs> the audience erupts in laughter. because Paul Sorvino? Paul Sorvino. He delivers that line straightforward. And the audience laughs and, and Al Pacino's like, oh, wait, what? No. Um, again, there is some moments, but an odorama. Oh. Yes. I, well, I love that you bring up the awkwardness of Al Pacino dancing and how a theatrical audience reacts to that because I actually love that scene because of how true it is. We've mm -hmm. seen that guy at a bar. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's oh, yeah. the thing that, like, if they wanted to take this into a different kind of gay movie territory is that suddenly it would be a big fucking number and he would know all the moves, but he doesn't. He's awkward. He's strange. Yeah. And, like, that's true. You know, we're not going to get Nomi Malone automatically knowing the <laughs> choreography. He's supposed to be a fish out of water. So for his, like, weird little jerkiness... It, to be fair, he there is a little Nomi Malone in his dancing. <laughs> <laughs> also, to be fair, the guys were dancing to disco numbers. It was Freakin's choice to put in punk. Right. And that was another choice that he made that, again, makes the movie work. If that had been disco numbers in there, this movie would be Can't Stop the Music. It would be dated. Yeah, it would still be appreciated right. on some levels, but a camp vibe would have happened, like, beyond. Like, even more so, because disco is so pronounced. But I'm glad that he used punk. I never enjoyed the score at the time, or there is sometimes, like, they're not really dancing this kind of music, are they? But it works and so, yeah. again, Friedman, he deviated from the norm on that and was like, no, disco isn't going to work here. I need something hardcore, which he was right to do. So, Jeff, as we're starting to wrap up, and you talked about this a little bit when you talked about um, seeing the movie and then kind of rewatching it and embracing it. Since that time, I know that you have only obsessed about it more. You become more <laughs> of a fan with every passing year. And something I like to ask every guest on the show, because cult movies are movies that we carry with us and we grow with them. How has your relationship with cruising changed over the years, if at all? I would say that maybe a few years ago, I would say it was at my peak obsessiveness. This is where I got that big, giant French bus shelter size poster and got it framed. And then I got, you know, Italian photo lobby cards. I got the book, the, the movie tie-in paperback book, not the original book, the, 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 the same because it's based off of a book. Um, I was, again, commissioned somebody to do a Ken doll in a cruising outfit type of thing, and he did it perfectly. And I was really gung-ho um, in doing that. I and people who go to my Instagram page, they know when I'm into a theme, I am into a theme, I'm locked into it, and then I go all in, and then I let the dust settle. But 
cruising over the time. I just watched it recently organically just because it's, I wouldn't say it gives me comfort, but you can both attest to this when you're watching your cult films that your favorites, they do bring sort of a sense of comfort after a while because you've embraced it. I also will say this as well. And again, you both see this on my social media a lot. I like to champion the underdogs, okay? I love the film Carrie. I love the film Halloween. Those are great films or mainstream films. But The Fog or The Fan mm. or Cruising or Can't Stop the Music or Tented Midnight or some of these other ones, The Sentinel, those are the underdogs. And I like to love them more because on some levels, I feel like an underdog. I think we feel like an underdog sometimes. Yeah. And I like giving that love there. I think I'm glad that Cruisin' has its mainstream acceptance to a degree. But remember that gay community had to accept it first before it could get some gay, uh, so mainstream sort of acceptance. I'm not sure if that answers your question completely. But again, as I look in my bedroom every day and there's big giant two cruising posters in the bedroom, I wake up to Al Pacino staring ominously, uh, you know, every day. It's also next to my Christopher Atkins, A Night in Heaven stripping posters. <laughs> that does balance things out. Well, that makes total sense. And you on your social media, for sure, feature a lot of the underdogs. And I know, remind us or bring to light things we may not have seen yet. So where can people who are listening follow you? Just simply at Jeffrey Mixed on Instagram. I'm not going to try to do the TikTok lane and Facebook is, is what it is. And I don't have a website or anything like that. I'm just enjoying doing what I'm doing. I appreciate the community that's there. You both know this. It's all about engagement. And the comments that people leave on that page are just side splitting, hysterical. Everybody's having a good time. It's there for escape. And yeah. I'm having fun. You know, I have some interesting projects in the works that will materialize down the road in the fall. Um, well, it'll be the most bonkers what the fuck stuff that I've ever done in my life. So keep your eyes out on that. But Cruising has made my page. Can't Stop the Music has made my page. All of the movies that you both showcase, highlight on your podcast and, and all of your stuff is there all the time. So I always look at it as like this. If you're gay and you're campy, you can go into my page. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeff, we cannot thank you enough for coming to talk to us about cruising. This was great. And I do highly encourage listeners, if you're not already following uh, Jeff on Instagram at Jeffrey Mixed, uh, you absolutely need to, from all of the movie clips to curiosities of commercials and television and the magnificence of Italian dancing sensation, Heather Parisi. He's got <laughs> it all. And I, I know I look forward to every new post. Thank yes. you so much. Thank you, Jeff. I'd like to close and just say just once again, very, very, very honored to be here with you guys. I have appreciated all the entertainment that you have brought all of us for a very long time. And so to be in the same company with you and doing this is just uh, a highlight. So well, the feeling so is mutual. Yes. Thank you. Thank Truly you. That was our interview with Jeff Nelson. And as Michael mentioned ahead of our conversation, 
Jeff did just release a single that we don't discuss because it hadn't come out yet when we spoke with him. But I want to point out the album cover, which is fabulous. It's a very cruising. Have you seen the album cover for it? Yeah, it's a very cruising album cover. Yeah, so check out Jeffrey Mixed, I'm Not Your Second Choice. But also do yourself a favor. And like we say in the conversation, follow him on Instagram because he is very, very entertaining. And I loved that conversation about cruising. Me too. I really appreciate that Jeff approached the material, both with the importance of its place in queer history, but also with his appreciation for camp, which of course we see in his curation of the stuff that he does online. And he brought such a unique discussion point to it because when you talk about cruising, we often usually dig into kind of the severe aspects of it. But there is a lot here to be celebrated as well. Absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of what we embrace is the fun of stuff. And unfortunately, with some of these films, you have to look at the problematic in order to enjoy the fun stuff. So, you know, this movie, it's got some racism going on. It's certainly got some homophobia going on. It's also very much missing any sort of female character, female presence of interest. The only woman in the movie has very little to do with the storyline or, you know, doing anything interesting. So it's very much a movie of its time. And it has a lot of the problematic aspects of the gay community at the time. And I think it's something we do a good job of getting into with our next guest. This is someone who came to Peaches Christ Productions when they were such a child and got involved 20 years ago. And I'll share on the Patreon some of our collaborations. Some of my most favorite Peaches images from over the years. It's like Attack of the 50-Foot Peaches. Oh, yeah. Like very you, gold. Yeah. With the, like, pillbox hat. And totally. Oh, I love that yeah. photo. Yeah. And I'm in Union Square. That's all him. He was a kid learning how to take photos and and do Photoshop and not only learning, but mastering it. I mean, that photo to this day, those photos of me as a giant 50 foot woman, that holds up. He is so talented. He's a talented filmmaker. But one of the things I really love about him is he's just smart. He's sensitive. He's generous. He's one of these people who really makes our community better, but doesn't beat you over the head, letting you know that that's what he's doing. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I I absolutely do. Yeah. And so I'm thrilled that he could come and be here today to talk about cruising. Without further ado, it's the fabulous Leo Herrera. (laughs) What's happening now? We're finding another one. Welcome back, everybody. It's me, Peaches, and I'm very excited to introduce our next guest on the Midnight Mass podcast. This guest is someone I've known for a long time, I swear. I think he was maybe literally a child when we met, and we began (laughs) collaborating very early on. He and his brother are creative forces to be reckoned with. He did photos, and his brother styled me. They were a powerhouse of a duo, and I've watched him go on to become a successful filmmaker, a writer, photographer, 
And he is so prolific that I can't get into all of his credits right here. So many projects going on, so many exciting things, certainly someone to follow on social media. Without further ado, it's the one, the only, my friend, Leo Herrera. Welcome, Leo. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Peaches. I've got an annoying dog here barking in the background. It peppers a little bit of extra magic. Well, Leo, I thought of you for this particular movie because you, to me, are a young person who is very good at romanticizing a part of queer history that you could not have been there for. And I don't know if that's a fair assessment, but I was born in the 70s before you, so I was too young to be hanging out at gay bars or leather bars in the 70s. But I also romanticize that period and love that period of queer history. And I'm wondering if we can dig in there. Is that connected to your interest in the movie Cruising? And what are your thoughts about the movie Cruising? I think a lot of us romanticize that time for obvious reasons, part of it being the fact that it's that area between gay liberation, the explosion of gay liberation, and pre-AIDS. And there is there has not been a time like that in our queer landscape. And I think it holds a lot of our imagination. I think it's a little dangerous to romanticize it fully because there are a lot of problematic areas during that time. There's a lot of racism. There's a lot of misogyny. There's a lot of transphobia that we have during that time frame. But for a lot of us, a movie like Cruising and sort of the golden era of 1970s porn and music and queer culture that was in the mainstream in a way that we haven't seen since then, it's important for us. And I think it's been an important time politically and artistically. So the 70s holds such a specific place in people's imagination and queer people's imagination. And cruising is sort of in the center of that in a way that not a lot of mainstream pieces of media are. Well, it's interesting that we begin the conversation with discussion of the romanticizing of the film Cruising. If you look at the climate during when the movie was made, it was not being romanticized by the queer folks of the era. As we know, the film had a lot of resistance against it while it was being made and immediately after upon its release. And as tends to happen with a lot of movies that we discuss on Midnight Mass, but very significantly with this film, it has been reclaimed by queer audiences. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that, this idea of reclaiming a movie that at the time was very much vilified is too strong of a word, but certainly met with resistance. And, and when did you think the change happened there? Well, it's interesting because the other movie that strikes a chord like that around that time is Boys in the Band, which was directed by William Friedkin as well. So there are pieces of media that, you know, they have to be taken in the context of the political climate. So during the late 70s, queer people were still dealing with being vilified, being thought of as murderers, as crazy. So when a movie like this came around, of course, it was being met with so much resistance from the community. But then when you actually watch the movie, you realize it's not about what we were really scared it was going to be about and how the SNM facet of it was really sort of a red herring the entire time. Mm -hmm. So there's two things going on at the same time, which is you can't blame these queens for being really, really angry about it and for protesting it. But at the same time, it follows this pattern of us judging pieces of artwork before we actually even see them. Watching the film now, I have so many different feelings about it. But for me, when it started to kind of fit into the, the new gay psyche was during the early 2000s in San Francisco when the sort of proliferation of 1970s imagery was starting to happen. And so cruising was at the center of this thing that we were starting to reclaim 
after so many years of death and, and AIDS and, and fear about that stuff, there was a lot of people in San Francisco that were sort of seeing, looking back at the disco age and all of the things that it could teach us. So the idea that cruising would be streaming on something like Netflix right. would have been unthinkable, you know, even just 20 years ago. So a whole nother generation of young queers are taking a look at something that's like, it's a massive movie. It's not a small independent film. It's it's a film by with one of the biggest actors of the time, by one of the biggest directors of the biggest movies of the time. So it's not some kind of fringe cult classic. It was enormous. So when young people are like, Al Pacino is in a movie about... <laughs> <laughs> like, what a psycho killer is doing poppers on the dance floor? Like, yeah, it's going to spark interest. <laughs> <laughs> I actually am really excited that we brought this up because it's something I've thought about, but we haven't really talked about it much. And that is this idea that um, queer people were protesting movies like Cruising and even Boys in the Band for negative portrayals of queer people in an era where there were so few portrayals. And part of the protest was... We don't have any representation. And then when we do have representation, in the case of Boys in the Band, it was it was considered stereotypical, quote unquote. And in the case of Cruising, it was considered psychotic or, you know, that queer people are killers. And we saw that all the way up to the 90s with Basic Instinct and Silence of the Lambs. Mm -hmm. And certainly I think there was a shift after that. When, you know, movies like Philadelphia, you know, starring Tom Hanks started to come out and, you know, things were no longer just relegated. Queer people weren't just relegated to these sort of scandalized films in the Hollywood way. There were always independent films with positive gay portrayals, but the criticism, of course, was that they were small and they lacked distribution and young queer people didn't have access to them, you know, where something like Cruising was going to be widely distributed. But my question to you is this. Do you think queer people were upset about the killer alone because we had seen that so much and i think by the time we get to basic instinct and silence of the lambs certainly the pathology of those characters was what was at issue or were they more upset that there was going to be this revelation about queer people and it was true they were using real bars with the real gay men like part of me just realizes i don't even know if it was the killer that upset people as much as pulling the veil back on a part of our community that maybe we enjoyed having be secret in a way. That's what makes cruising such a cultural artifact because it's it's refracting so much. On one level, you have the psycho killer trope, which started with the production code because you had to be a vile human being to be homosexual. And most of the times you ended up having to be the killers or having to be killed or both of them. So on one hand, you have a very real fear from acceptable gays that we are once again being portrayed as murderers. And then there's the other factor where it's like, can you just keep this shit to yourself? Because we're having a great time. And a lot of right. these bars were, you know, boycotted by patrons. And I was reading up on the history about it. And so, yes, there is the element of that. And one of the things that makes cruising so important is how genuine it is. It's very authentic to the time. It's very authentic to the bars, to the music in the bars, the dress the dress codes in the bars, the sex in the bars. So it's a movie that's not only told for the straight gays, it's also told for the gay gays. And I don't think we understood how to handle something like that and understand that there was going to be a lot of different layers to it. Most of the uh, protests that happened were for a leaked script and they weren't protests after the fact. 
um, they were protests during it. And I think there is a level of us not wanting to have that side of us exposed. I would like to talk a little bit about William Friedkin himself. Here is someone who made two movies that are in very different ways about a queer experience, both of which were met with some resistance by the queer community and have come back around as artifacts and pieces of film that have been embraced by the queer community. And I'm curious what your take is on his overarching presence in this world and what he did and even the fact that he's the one who did it. Because I don't know if either of you are aware, uh, the producer of this movie had previously worked with Friedkin on The French Connection and he had approached Friedkin to do this and Friedkin passed first. And when Friedkin mm -hmm. passed, he took it to Steven Spielberg. Imagine <laughs> this movie made by <laughs> Steven Spielberg. It would have never been the movie that we got. I so want to see that movie, though. <laughs> and I'm certain... With AI, we're going to be able to see it soon enough. Just... Right. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Give it two more years. But what's interesting to me is that it's not just Boys in the Band and Cruising. To me, The Exorcist is a really queer movie. I rewatched it. Uh, Hello, there's two priests in it. Hello. There are two baggy priests <laughs> <Yeah>. in there. <laughs> and part of the tension of The Exorcist is the queerness of it that's at the heart of it, right? With the, yeah. with the obviously gay priest and then his sort of maybe the main priest is gay. And there's all of this psychosexual tension and Friedkin is playing with that. And he's playing with this really intensely violent, volatile sexual themes. And you sort of see mm -hmm. where his interest starts to lie in the way that those themes can make somebody uncomfortable in a way that they can't process. So for example, people will focus on the pea soup throw up and all of this other stuff. And when you really watch the film, you're like, no, there's all of these really psychosexual themes going on. That's really what's making people super uncomfortable. And, you know, even just when you get to the extremes of like the crucifix, her fucking herself with a crucifix and stuff like that. So this is already yeah, even the demon is queer. You know what I mean? Like what, yeah. only, only a queer person's going to say your cunting daughter. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> you know what I mean. Like sounds like a drag queen. Yeah, yeah, she sounds yeah. like a drag queen. Your cunting daughter. It's like okay, queen. So much of it is like very queer specific guilt of our mothers and and uh, repressed uh, sexuality. So a lot of that, when you sort of watch that with that lens and you see what he went on to do, movies like The Exorcist start to be redefined. So you already see him playing with the idea of self-loathing, how repressed sexual feelings and homosexuality can be so volatile and can turn into actual demons. So it's something that I feel like he was already exploring and cruising is sort of the crescendo of that. And it's fitting into a culture right before AIDS where there is a hunger in the audience for different dimensional gay characters and to actually see these things. And the part of the tragedy or part of the wonder of cruising is that because AIDS comes, they have to hide it and it gets suspended in cinematic amber in a way where yeah. it becomes this artifact that nobody wants to talk to about. I like that you brought in The Exorcist because I think people don't talk about the queerness of The Exorcist enough and it's certainly there. Boys in the Band and Cruising are just overtly queer, whereas all of his movies in many ways had a sort of audacity to them that to me, seems queer. And also he really, by taking on the Catholic Church the way he did with The Exorcist, mm -hmm. you know, that's that's queer. You know what I mean? Like, there's something about his middle finger to the Catholic Church who hated The Exorcist. Yeah. Talk, about, talk about pulling the veil back. There is a talkback that Friedkin did, I think, 
with regard to this movie, where someone refers to him as a straight identifying filmmaker and Friedkin grabs the mic and said, who said that? I never said that. Now, yeah, he was married mm-hmm. to a woman, but I think yeah. that Friedkin over the course of his career really has this fascinating thing where he was not interested in normativity in any way in right. like in terms of how he explored it in his work and of course as a man during that era he was going to fit into some of those constructs regardless but seeing him try to buck against it whether it's religion or whether it's heteronormativity i think that there's so many onion layers here that we could dig into that go far past cruising. Yeah, I agree. I have been thinking a lot about William Friedkin in movies kind of like The Exorcist, as well as Boys in the Band and Cruising, and how specific the reaction to those films are to the time period in which they were released. He's very much tapping into the taboos of the moment. And so my question to you, Leo, is could we have a movie today that would be a scandalous revelation about the queer community? Or is a movie maybe about S&M and the leather scene here? I guess it wouldn't really be controversial today, or or would it? Do we still want to keep these things secret, I guess is my point. I don't think there are any secrets anymore. I just think the audience is so fragmented that it would be sort of impossible to really show everybody something all at once in a way that would be as shocking or as revelatory or as blanketing the culture as something like cruising would have been during that time. I think there's always terrible things that we do on our own that we want to keep secret. They should make an expose movie about Drag Queen Story Hour and reveal the truth about how we're teaching children to become trans. That, that Because I, I think we want to keep that sort of quiet. Something that I would want to see that I actually tried to get this movie made the last two years and it just didn't work because there's not a lot of interest in the, the stories. But, you know, for example, something that would be interesting to me would be the pipeline of like OnlyFans and sex work mm, in private and the way that sex work and social media have become together to such a point that it fuels drug use and fuels depression and fuels narcissism. Like that would be something that I would want to see. But I would also be really kind of nervous about showing other people that side. Like I get a little pushback when I talk about park cruising on my social media or when I talk about, you know, bathhouses and stuff. Uh, like right. Every once in a while, I'll get a gay guy who's like, can you like not let all of the housewives that follow you know exactly <laughs> what we're up to? Right. Um, there's part of that. But I think at this point, so much of our media has focused on gay trauma. And at the heart, cruising really is about two things, which is gay self-loathing and police corruption Mm -hmm. and how toxic masculinity fits into both of those things and feeds into both of those things. And so at that time, that was something that was revolutionary and still it's revolution. I mean, the movie opens up with two cops taking two trans women into their car to get a blowjob. That's how the movie opens. So it really sets up who the enemy really is if you're paying attention. Yes. Really early on. So having to examine like, what's our enemy now? Honestly, it's the same shit, (laughs) right? Right. It's like systemic homophobia and self-loathing. Is that exciting anymore? I don't know. (laughs) Would it be shocking? I'm glad that we landed in this place talking about what the movie's about, the police corruption, the toxic masculinity, because one of the things I wanted to bring up was motive of killer. Because in one of the contemporary reviews at the time, one of the reviewers was really sort of bothered by the fact that the killer, air quotes, didn't have an identifiable motive in 
the film. And the only thing that they cite in this review is that we get the flashback with the killer talking to the dad, uh, you know, saying, you know what you need to do. And then that's it. You know, timeline wise, the father may not have even known the killer was homosexual. And and so the, mm-hmm. this this bumped against the reviewer for some reason. And I don't know that it particularly matters that we need a motive because it speaks to the toxic masculinity issues that you brought up. But I wondered what your take on that was. Why do we have to have a motive? Number one, it's a slasher film, right? Also, right. at its heart of it is sort of a slasher film. We don't we don't have to give motives to Michael Myers. So why do we have to give ourselves one? That's right. There's plenty of reasons that a fag in the 1970s would lose their mind and kill a bunch of other fags. You know, so this was sort of explored in Ryan Murphy's American Horror Story NYC. I don't know if you guys saw that, which is basically a huge ripoff of Cruising where the killer turns out, spoiler everybody, the killer turns out to be AIDS. I did read that, yes. It's Yeah, I have huge problems with that. But what that kind of showed me is that when you sort of have to explain it and you have to give this metaphor this much of a body, it really takes away from the impact of it. So a gay guy with daddy issues, yeah, he snapped and went crazy and is obviously, you know, the thing that he says to everybody when he kills them is, you made me do this, which is sort of the defense that's used by abusers from the beginning of time. So to me, it's a story of abuse. At the center of it, cruising is about abuse and about the abuse we give ourselves when we lie to ourselves. And the fact that it leaves it open-ended so that you think that it might have been the cop the whole time was an interesting choice to me. I love that you bring up where the filmmaker stands on who the real enemy is because the the corruption of the police force in this movie was so ahead of its time. It's still something that's completely controversial, you know, and the movie is so wild in terms of, you know, all of its representations, but also honest. Talk about that scene where the guy comes in and smacks him with the interrogation and just how twisted and bizarre it is. And then if you read up on the movie, you find out that that was based on reality and that this movie was written by someone who was a working detective and that these things are actually based in reality. I love that, first of all. But then as we're talking, I think we're tapping into, or at least in my mind, tapping into something a little different and a little deeper even than pulling back the veil on a secret part of our community or having a negative representation of queer people. I think that he also tapped into, especially gay men, queer men, But any queer person, but especially queer men's deepest fears, because we know there are people, including our own people, who want to kill us. Mm -hmm. And so when things like Pulse happen, for example, it is Mm -hmm. that kind of experience that whether we like to admit it or not, is somewhere in our subconscious every time we go to a queer space. When we hook up, and we do a lot with strangers... There is always that Mm -hmm. little kernel of, you know, (laughs) am I going to make it out alive? And I think that this film in particular taps into a real primal fear, maybe one that we don't really want to discuss. And I actually saw this documentary. I think it's on HBO called Last Call. That's sort of a post-cruising story about a guy in New York who's Mm -hmm. killing, you know, gay guys and how that led to the creation of the uh, anti-violence task force in New York and and just all sorts of political activism that queer people had to do for themselves because the police weren't doing it. But that documentary, if you want a good sort of double feature, 
Cruising and last call are really interesting to think about together because it is our deepest fear and it really does happen. You know, in, in San Francisco, we had the doodler, you know, at the same time. Just last year in New York, a group of people were killed, a couple of gay guys by sort of accident by drugging them and then using their phone to take money out and everything. And so going back a little bit, one of the things that makes cruising really interesting to me is the fact that it's really the fear that it's coming from our own. Now, the scene with the cop and the big black man in the jockstrap who's like bitch slaps yeah. him, that gets a lot of the attention. Yeah. But when I rewatch the film, when they bring the other guy in, they tell him that he has to jerk off to get a semen sample when they bring in the, the guy who gets punched. And right before they tell him that, this other detective sits down and does poppers <laughs> right before that. What? I don't remember that. Yeah, you have. it's such a small detail. Wow. And I had to rewind it. He comes in, they have the guy in the corner. After the guy smacks him, the kid goes to the corner and then they tell him, we're going to need a semen sample from you because we're going to pin this on you. And this other cop comes in, doesn't say anything. He looks all creepy and weird. And he sits down and he does amyl nitrate. Wow. Really, it's a very fast moment, but he obviously sits down to watch this guy jerk off. And there's a lot of moments in cruising that I talk about it for being for the gay gays that only the gay members of the audience would catch on to them. The way that like Al Pacino, you could totally tell he has been fucking, but they kind of leave it really vague. Yeah. How he right. follows the guy in Central Park. He looks back at the camera and then he keeps walking. And we know what's going to happen, but the audience, a straight audience, doesn't. So a lot of the fears that I think and the discomfort when you're a gay guy watching it is that there's queer people in the police force. You know, it opens up with sexual abuse by other queer people. This idea that it could be one of us that is murdering people is so... You know, those are safe spaces. Um, so I think that's all the, the fact that Friedkin picks up on that level is what tells me that that's somebody who's been exploring the layers of queer trauma since The Exorcist and how they can psychologically get into an audience's head without realizing. It's very evident that you have thought a lot about the layers of this movie. And so as we are starting to wrap up, one question I like to ask guests uh, who bring cult films to us and, and celebrate cult films with us is from when you first saw cruising to now, how has your relationship with this movie changed? It seems like you've thought about it quite a bit. It was a seminal experience for me to watch it at like 22 from a video store in San Francisco in the Castro, right? Renting and going home and being like, what the fuck? <laughs> because I remember reading about it. And I remember, you know, as I got older and read up on films, because cruising came out the same year that I was born. So I didn't have that experience with it. What's interesting to me now is watching it as a 40-year-old as opposed to the 20-year-old. The jump was so crazy, like re-watching it the other night where I was expecting it to be something that it wasn't. Picking up on the police brutality element of it and picking up on, the, on more of the self-loathing and also picking up on how white it is and the racial gentrification of the time and how there's no other representation. The only time we basically see a Black person is when they're in this crazy role of bitch slapping some boy in a police station. Otherwise, as an adult now, I, I do get to see how sort of homogenous those spaces were that I had really romanticized when I was younger. And also picking up on the way that fetish changes. So when he walks in and all of these cops are fucking each other, and they're inside this place and the guy's like, you're not dressed as a cop. And it's it's such a comical, campy moment where he's like, what do you mean? He's like, it's precinct night. Um, I don't like your attitude. So understanding now as an adult where 
the way that we dealt with that police brutality was to dress up as cops and to fuck each other. That was our big fuck you to them. And I, I actually talked about this to Dan Savage a couple of weeks ago because we were discussing how Nazi uniforms have somehow made a comeback in fetish spaces and how people are trying to like wrestle with that. So to me, watching it as an adult now, I have to be in a position where it allows me to sort of examine like the spaces that cruising really genuinely depicted. What are our spaces now? And what would somebody filming a film about that? What would I be concerned about it exposing? For for example, for me, it'd be like, oh, the G and the meth use of those spaces and the misogyny of those spaces and the um, the body homogenization. And the racism. Yeah, it's all of that, right? That's what I would be concerned about, where I would be embarrassed of having somebody pull the veil on so much of that problematic stuff that we have in those same fetish spaces that are supposed to be safe spaces. And I think at 40 now, I understand that a lot of that safety is an illusion because we're one G overdose away from losing them. You know, we're one shootout away from losing those spaces. So how do you sort of record them in time, honor them, and at the same time, not endanger them as a lot of the protesters were concerned about during that time. That makes a ton of sense. Even tackling the issues of dressing up like the cops or, you know, a Nazi and what that all stands for. And I think once you come out of the closet to yourself, you're more apt to be open about things that turn you on that are problematic. You know, um, the difference is, you know, I I think we talk about why they're problematic more now than we did then. But it's still interesting because part of dressing up as the cops and fucking each other wasn't just that it was a middle finger. It was also that the idea of these men actually turned us on to some degree, you know, which is it's just so, you know, bizarre. And it's interesting to have the, this discussion about it because when we started to use cruising for our event projections in 2005, you know, it was a big deal to reclaim that. And now it's, it, like I said, now it's on streaming and we're having a conversation on a podcast yeah. about it, which is strange that a piece of media can travel in so many different iterations of our culture and has something to say to each generation. Before we can let you go, there's a number of things uh, that I want you to talk about about yourself because they do relate to cruising. One is you are the creator of an accessory that is uh, a popper's bottle necklace, I guess you would say, with a fancy cap. I think that's totally apt to a cruising conversation (laughs) and should be discussed. You also are the creator of a very fascinating project called The Father's Project. And then you have a book coming out. So if you could quickly talk about those things. And just so you know, everyone, this is just scratching the surface of Leo Herrera's (laughs) body of work. For starters, if people want to join me on my Instagram, it's got all of the links to everything. It's Herrera Images, H-E-R-R-E-R-A. I do do a lot of studies on the history of poppers, for example. So I did a deep dive on my Substack, which you can also find linked to my Instagram. So I'm very interested in sort of how those iconographs from the 70s translate to this time today. And I have a book coming out of the social media writings of the last three and a half years of poems and lectures and history lessons that is also available at my Instagram at Herrera Images. And you can also follow me on Substack where I do much deeper dives. I'll probably be doing a dive on cruising now. Actually, you've inspired me to like dig into some of these themes a little bit more. Wonderful. 
Leo, thank you so much for joining us today and digging into the history of cruising as well as the history of queerness. I mean, they're they're interconnected and uh, you brought a lot of wonderful insight. So on behalf of both of us, thank you so much. Thanks, Ghoul. Thank you so much for having me. And that was our interview with the fantastic Leo Herrera. You know, Peaches, I loved everything that Leo said about the movie, but more so, I was really taken with the contextualization that Leo brought to queer history, both then and now. These things really help frame our understanding of pieces of art like this. And I really think it's so important in discussing a film like Cruising to go farther. And Leo allowed us to do that. This is an episode where, coincidentally, I've got a dog barking in the background. I'm dog-sitting, so apologies about that. But these two guests are actually incredible content makers in their own right on social media. And both of them are people that I'm going to implore our listeners to go find and follow. And we don't say this very often, but both of them are creating great content. Jeff's is wildly entertaining. It's just camp curated genius. And Leo's is really social commentary about the world, about our community. It's just so thoughtful and so well presented. And so go check these guys out and follow them on social media because, you know, outside of cruising, they're just incredible. And it bears repeating that both are celebratory of the queer experience in their way. And that's why you really want to be following them. Yeah. If you two are dancing badly to disco while getting fisted in the corner, then you two might be (laughs) one of the children of the popcorn now. Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production.